welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Good morning, friends. My name's Micah. If we haven't met, I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken. So glad you're here. Uh, you have walked in, if you're new to Awaken, you've just walked into week three of Advent. And every year at Awaken, we do a series called the Advent Art Series where we ask uh, a visual artist and usually a writer. Today we have our, uh, our first dancer who will be offering something today, which is very exciting. But usually uh, a visual artist and a writer of sorts um, to create something around the themes of Advent. And so I'm going to invite Emma Mullender to come and share a little bit about her piece. And then Brenda Nepsund will be dancing for us for, well, it's actually the second time because she did it first hour. So, but we'll just pretend for the first time ever at Awaken. So welcome Emma, if you would, please. <laughs> um, as Micah said, my name's Emma, and I work for an art organization called Inverted Arts. And um, when Micah asked me to do um, the Advent art this week, I was thinking a lot about the themes of Advent and which one really stood out the most to me this year. And um, this year's been pretty crazy for me. I moved away from home, like 11 hours away from home for the first time, and I left the college that I thought was like my life goal, and um, I broke up with a guy who I was really serious with, and I just kept coming back to the thought of waiting and not knowing what was coming and thinking that I had everything planned out and just knowing that, that I continue to not have anything planned out and I don't know at all what's happening, but um, uh, there's a song by the Pines, and the words in it, some of the words in one of them are, unhide your hiddens. And that was really something that stood out to me, uh, like figuring out what is in my life that's hidden and, and a lot of things that I don't even realize are hidden anymore. And um, so I, the studio that I work at, I have a bunch of candles on my desk and uh, I just light them every time I go in and it's really peaceful and really calming to me and um, also really symbolizes the unhiding your hiddens. And so this painting is a self-portrait and I'm just kind of looking off into the dark, um, not sure what's coming, but um, knowing that whatever is coming is better than whatever was in the past and just learning and the, the theme of anticipation and waiting um, for whatever is the future. Hi, so I'm Brenda and I'll be doing a dance today. Um, thanks for letting me share in this safe space. I just really appreciate that. And um, I also just want to say whatever comes up for you, whatever you interpret or speaks to you, um, that's valid. And I would love to know your thoughts at the end if you have any. So please feel free to share. Um, these are just some words that kind of inspired me as I was creating. Sifting through the darkness to find light waiting in the silence for a whisper, longing to be close again. All the while, this desire creates a deepening in our relationship with God himself. We learn to trust and to yearn for what's to come. He's preparing us for something new. So beautiful, so beautiful, thank you. 
So dancer next week. <laughs> that was amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, boy. I don't know if any of you were here last week, but I feel the need to apologize for the awkward transition from the reading that happened um, last week and the greeting that followed that. I don't know if you were here, but there was this beautiful, very tender uh, offering, and uh, I wanted to say something, but I didn't want to ruin it either, so we just went back to like greeting one another. So if you got whiplash and you had any chiropractic bills, please send them to me. Totally my fault on that one, I apologize, but um, wow, so cool. Um, we are in a series called The Advent Conspiracy, and so we're wondering if there isn't um, maybe some other ways we can approach this or some questions we might ask that would afford us the opportunity to experience this thing that we do every single year from the moment we're born until Jesus comes back called Christmas. And I want to begin this morning with a question, and the question is this, can Christmas really change the world? Which sounds like a Hollywood trailer, you know, like, can Christmas really change the world? Welcome to the snowpocalypse. <laughs> but seriously, can Christmas change the world? Uh, and I think if we're honest with ourselves when we think about that question and we look around and we watch the news we recognize that there's probably no less war and oppression and violence and greed and bloodshed since Bethlehem. And there's probably no less than before. It seems like that's just kind of running its course. And yet we say that, can Christmas really change the world? Hollywood seems to think so, right? The movies and all the things that come out around Christmas, Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life. I know those movies because my mother used to make my brothers and I, all five of us, sit down and watch It's a Wonderful Life. And was Jimmy Rooney? Is that the guy's name? I don't even know. We hated it then. Great wisdom on my mom's part to make us watch those classics. Um, I mean, Nicolas Cage is even wondering, in The Family Man, can Christmas change the world? And it seemingly he thinks he can. So if Nick Cage thinks it can change the world, it's got to be big, right? And then there's the Bible, the scriptures. And you read the scriptures, you read the prophets, you read the gospels, and there seems to be this consistent message that there is a, a vision of an empire and a kingdom and a rule that will have no end, and a kingdom and an empire that will topple other systems that have come before it. And there seems to be this consistent message that, yes, in fact, Christmas, this baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 and some years ago, can, in fact, change the world. They're all tied up in this moment. It's a big It's a big deal. Do you guys remember, uh, what's the one with um, uh, Ben Stiller and the, uh, the volleyball, uh, uh, Meet the Parents? You remember that one? It's like, well, if Florence Nightingale over here would play some defense, I missed one shot. That was a big shot. It's a big deal. That was not in the notes. <laughs> so can Christmas really change the world? I don't know. I do know that two weeks ago we talked about spending less, Advent conspiracy. There's a conspiracy for you. How about spend a little bit less during Christmas, take one gift you would have bought, make it, give a gift of presents or your time, take that money that you would have spent on that one gift, just one, not all, just one, 
and then redirect those funds. Let's see if we can't conspire together. So next week, December 18th, we'll be taking an offering, a special Advent offering from all the money that you would have spent on that one gift. We're going to try to put it together and see if we can't conspire to do something over at Linwood Monroe called the Sheridan Story, where basically hungry kids get fed. Amen? Let's do that. Let's do that. Somebody already came up to me. They said, I'm not going to be here next week, so can I leave this cash with you? And I was like, no, you can put it in that envelope and then put it in that box. <laughs> Wisdom. I'm getting older. Getting older. So uh, that was week one. Week two, last week, Dan talked about um, giving more. If we spend less, can we encourage you to give more? Uh, and really, the most important piece of that is that generosity and giving more doesn't have anything to do with your wallet, first and foremost, but it has everything to do with the disposition of your heart. How you see the world and God. That's where generosity begins. So can we give more? And this week I want to dive into what does it mean to love all? A very small and insignificant topic. Love. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And stand if you can, and we will read from Matthew's Gospel. Just two verses. Our number one was a little sleepy, I'll have to warn you. So I'm hoping that our number two has a little more pep, a little more zip. All right? I meant the people, not me. I was, I was on point, but they just missed it all. I don't know what happened. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God, this morning as we gather in this place, on this snowy morn, as your church, we're grateful Grateful to have a place to worship, to gather together in your name. Uh, God, as we do so and as we open our hearts to the degree that we can to who you are and what you bring and want to offer us this morning, I pray that you would give us courage um, to give you permission to say what you might want to say to us. So Holy Spirit, come, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Love all. What does it mean to love all? This passage that we just read in Matthew chapter 5 is a part of a section called the Sermon on the Mount. I hope that someday that there's people who talk about me in some sermon that I gave. You know, do you remember the Sermon on the Stage? But I mean, Jesus preaches a pretty good one, a real humdinger. The Sermon on the Mount, and it's recorded in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. The part we just read is the end of a section where Jesus is basically engaging Torah. He's engaging Moses, if you believe Moses wrote Torah. He's engaging six laws or six ideas that Jews in Jesus' day would have been totally familiar with. And he's tweaking them. He upholds them, but then he actually takes them each a step further. And he talks about divorce, he talks about adultery, he talks about murder, he talks about an eye for an eye, he talks about giving your word an oath. And then he talks about loving your neighbor. And again, he takes each of these a step further. And so when Jesus says, you have heard it said this, but I say this. He says, you've heard it said you should love your neighbor. But I say, love your enemy. Which is not a message that anyone in 2016 needs to hear. Love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. The question I want to ask this morning is why? Why does he take it a step further? Why does Jesus ask us not to just love our enemies, but to love our, not to love our neighbors, but love our enemies in fact? And as we kind of turn this back towards Christmas and changing the world and loving all, I would say first and foremost, Jesus asks us to do so because it's not natural. 
fact, it's terribly unnatural. If you were to look back in Romans chapter 7, it says this in verse 15. Paul is talking about this great passage where he says, like, I do, I, I do know what I am supposed to do, but I don't do what I, what I should do. And, and all the junior hires talk about do-doing and don't-doing. Ah. He says this, I do not understand what I do, but for, for what I want. This is terribly difficult to read. I don't know if you've ever had this passage, but for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Basically, he's saying this. For those who, have, who said yes to Jesus, something happens where the Holy Spirit of God re-enters our life in a significant way and begins a process that the church has traditionally called sanctification. It's basically the, the, way, the means by which we're changed. And so there's a part of us that has been altered. It's been reborn. It's been regenerated. And yet, there's this war that wages inside of us. Can I get an amen? Where we know what we should do, but we don't do it. We know what I, we want to do, and yet somehow we can't make ourselves get there, yeah? And so Paul, he says, I do what I don't want to do, even though I know what I should do. So there's this part that's still being transformed, that's, that's here but not yet, right? And this is the part for whom it's totally natural to love those who love us and hate those who hate us. And so Jesus says, don't just love the neighbor who loves you, but love those who don't love you. It's unnatural to us to do this. We've all seen this play out, by the way. Like when kids are gathered and they're playing and everything is sweet and peace has come and the lights are going, the snow's coming down. The kids are playing with Legos and everyone's sharing and it's just, those moments are really sweet. Can I get, can, do you know what I'm saying? Like when you watch kids play together and like there's joy in their hearts and then one of them decides to say that utterly disastrous word, mine, you know that one? And it's like all hell breaks loose and kids are grabbing for things and Legos are being thrown around. If you want to know what's true about humanity, just watch kids for a while. It's easy for us to love those who love us, but it's not natural for us to love those who don't love us. Why is this difficult? Well, to love those who love me essentially affirms the position that I'm at the center of my universe. Right? I mean, existentially speaking, when I think of myself and I understand myself as a self, and I'm at the center, everything's fine and well. I can love you when you love me because it serves me. I can care for you when you care for me because in the end, it serves me, right? This is, this is natural to those of us who are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Thank you, C.S. Lewis, right? For those of us who, are, who have been born of Adam and born of Eve, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, it comes very naturally for me to care for you when you care for me because, in fact, it serves me. This idea with me at the center of my universe, or you at the center of your universe, stands in direct opposition to the very nature of what the self is according to the scriptures. When we think about humans and, and who they are, fundamentally, the idea that you are at the center of your own universe is diametrically opposed to the offering of the scriptures about who you are fundamentally as a human. We think that to be free, to be truly human, is to be free to do whatever I want, right? Where I'm at the center of my universe. But in fact, the scriptures argues a different point. It argues the idea that you're free only when you're in relationship and bound to the other. Bonhoeffer talks about this. We're free and truly free and human and truly human when we are in relationship with one another. When I am bound to you in relationship. That's when you're free. That's when you're truly human. Which makes perfect sense. When we think about the mystery of the Trinity, 
right? The church has been thinking about this for ages and centuries, debating and dialoguing and writing creeds about the mystery of the Trinity, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that there is this endless, self-giving relationality to the very nature and essence of God. If that's true, then it makes perfect sense then that for you and me to be truly free and human means that we're in relationship with one another. So, Jesus says, love not just your neighbors, because your neighbors may serve you, and you're at the center of your own universe at that point. But when you're not at the center of your universe, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's not natural to us. I would argue that Jesus also says, takes this a step further, because not only is it unnatural, but our first response is judgment, not love. Our first response is to judge. I remember I went into a coffee shop a while back, and Laura was with me. It seems like in all your worst moments, your spouse is there to witness and not, you know, like, you know, account for for all eternity till you die. So there I am, I go into this coffee shop, and the person behind the counter was just a snark, you know, just real snarky and had a real snip to their voice. Who knows what had happened? And I, of course, returned the favor, and I kind of, you know, I'm just like, get a little edge on me, and it's like, I'll have this, and yeah, that's what I said. I mean, just real non-pastoral move, you know? <laughs> and we get to the end, of, you get to the, you know, and Laura's just like, who are you? Like, why are you such a jerkwad? And I'm like, did you see that person? <laughs> And she's like, I remember this, I remember it to the day I died. She's like, you have no idea what their story is. Preach, woman, preach, come on. You don't know their story, but what came naturally to me was judgment, right? I am paying $4 for this caramel macchiato. I deserve a little bit of respect. My first response was not love. It's the last thing I was thinking about. And we know all this, right? I mean, this is, this is review. But if you go back in Genesis, at the beginning of the story in chapter 3, we read this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, introducing doubt into the equation, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, this isn't all of the flannel graphs. You know, the serpent comes, and there is Eve, naked but not really naked, you know, got the little leaf, z, leaves, which is a little bit of a double standard, don't you think? Adam just has a leaf. Leaves for Eve. Either way, you know the story. The question that's most important here is what did Adam and Eve gain when they ate the fruit? They, they, they gained knowledge, right? They gained the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I would argue that what we see in this moment is the intention of their heart. And the intention of their heart is not trust, and dependency, and relationality with God, where God says, you have everything that you need, and they believe that, and so they trust that all is well. No, what enters, what we see is suspicion and doubt. Did God really say, is God holding out on us? And what is gained in that moment is something that's foreign to the human experience, and it's the position of judge and jury to be 
the arbiter over good and evil, the final say-sower. And the author of Genesis expresses this in just fascinatingly stunning terms. The author says that they were naked and unashamed prior to Genesis 3, right? So after this moment when Adam and Eve eat the tree, something changes and something is altered and they experience their own nakedness as shame, which is fascinating, especially if you've ever had children running around your house naked, right? Parents in the room or those of you who have been fortunate enough to sit in on that moment when somebody comes out of the shower and they didn't know you were there, but those moments when your children, when they're young and they're wild and they're just like unabashed and they're proud, they don't even know what to be of their lovely little bodies and they run through the house just stark naked. I would love those moments because they're unaware. They're unashamed. They have not learned the very hard and horrible lesson that this world is not safe and they have to cover themselves up. And that moment when they realize it, The author expresses that this moment, when they eat, moves them from naked and unashamed, where they experience no shame, to being aware of their nakedness and aware of their shame. And something changes. I would submit to you that shame comes from our perceived inadequacies and our inability to live up to the expectations that we think others have of us. And judging and shame are the two sides of the same coin. Prior to our knowledge of good and evil and our judging, there was no shame. There was only shalom. There was only peace. And since Genesis 3, there is a new reality. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, where he essentially says that sin enters the world through one person, or in this case, one human, the, the sort of typical or essential human experience. And because of that, we all miss the mark in this way. There's something fundamentally sh that shifts fundamentally in us in that moment where our condition, our, our position with God, our dependency and trust in God, something changes and we are not allowed to live from the place that we were, that we were meant to live from, which is one of love and trust, of shalom. And in this way, we miss the mark. Bottom line, the net result of all of this, the reason Jesus invites his followers beyond Moses' law is because love is not natural and judgment is often our first response as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Are there any here this morning who cannot trace their lineage back to the first humans? Okay, we're in the same boat. It's like, a it's like AA. Hi, my name is Micah. I am a son of Adam. Welcome to the party. We naturally hate our enemies and those who persecute us because we come from this line. It's just what we do. It's autonomic. It's like breathing or your heartbeat. We do it without thinking. We show up during Christmas. I think when I went to this coffee shop, it was like during Christmas. And then I acted like such a jerkwad. To follow Jesus is to love the other and withhold judgment because it's not intended for us. This is a burden we were never intended to bear. And so when Jesus comes and offers freedom and good news, it's not from lots of the things that we think it is, but I would argue it's freedom from judgment and freedom from the ways in which we live that come naturally to us, but actually are, in fact, unnatural. We were meant for something else. So Jesus says, good news, everybody. You don't have to play that game anymore. 
love all. The invitation to allow yourself to be changed in such a way that love becomes your first response in increasing degrees, more and more and more and more. And this is a lifelong process. For those of you who are on the second half of life, you would probably raise your hands and say, amen, brother, we're still working on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a lifelong process. We all are in it. Finally, I would say, why does Jesus ask us to go a step further? Because the, the wisdom of God is the foolishness of the world. The gospel is foolishness. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the good news about Jesus and the, resur- the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying essentially, listen, here's what we preach to you. We're preaching the foolishness of the gospel. And to those who are listening, it, it sounds like foolishness. That we would ask you to die in order to live. To, that we would say that in, actu- in actual fact, what brings life is love, not selfishness. Not self-preservation, but self-sacrifice. That's the thing that powers the world. That's the engine that drives the world. God embeds in creation the potential for life, the potential for things to grow, the potential for love, and the only thing, or the potential for life, the only thing that will drive that, the only thing that nourishes those seeds that are embedded in creation, is the actions of love. So I would stand here today and be as foolish enough to say that it's love that will topple the empires that oppress and suppress. It's love that will change the world. It's love that will change you and it will change me. Because love is the only thing that has in it the power to to, to give nutrients to the the, the seeds that are embedded in creation. It's only actions of self-sacrifice. Not selfishness. Selfishness always dies alone. It has to. So I would submit to you this morning that as foolish as it sounds, it's love. It's the actions of love. And it's natural for us to extend love to those who care for us, who help us, who serve us. What's unnatural, what's more difficult, what we need resurrection for and why we desperately need what Christmas brings is because you and I, left to our own devices, Act like jerks in Starbucks. Does anybody else want to come up and tell their story? So friends, this morning I began with a question. Can Christmas really change the world? Wrong question. Questions elicit answers of their kind. I'm going to go ahead and say that again. Questions elicit answers of their kind. Wrong question. Can Christmas change me? Can Christmas change you? I don't know where you've come from today. and I don't know what it is that you're involved in, that you're right in the midst of. Some kind of conflict, some kind of pain, some kind of hurt. I've been doing this long enough to know that it's all here. And so I would just ask you to consider this this morning. We're talking about love which is massive, right? It is transcendent. How does love become imminent? Well, I think we have a pretty good example of that. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, being God, not considered God, equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. And love came here. The transcendent becomes imminent in a face. 
truth is embodied. So here's my question for you this morning. Is there one person that you can move towards in love? Maybe who doesn't even deserve your love. Maybe whose actions and previous history and choices renders them outside of your love circle. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to a time of silence. My hope and my prayer is that as the Holy Spirit guides you, that you would actually see a face. I did. I know exactly who it is, and I'm not excited about it. (laughs) That's real. And so would you move towards one person in love? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's that annoying neighbor. And maybe they're outside of deserving, which is pretty much where we all are. Amen? And this, this season of Advent, would you take one step towards love and that person? Pray with me if you would. God, as we take a few moments to consider what it means for us to move in one small way, which seems to many of us gigantic. I ask that by your spirit, which I believe is present here among us and with us, and which is the spirit of truth, so we have nothing to fear, we have nothing to be anxious about, as we submit ourselves to you and the process by which you change our hearts, we can trust you. You are good. You are light. You are love. And so because of that, in this next few moments of silence, we entrust our hearts to you and ask that you would show us one face that we can move towards in love this Christmas. Change our hearts, God.
Friends, as we transition into the last part of our gathering, I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to lift our voices together in one final song. And the hope and prayer of this song is that uh, in our hearts, in our lives, uh, in our journey as a community and as a church, uh, that Christ would be at the very center of all that we do. And I think as we contemplate what it looks like to move towards others in love, I think that's the only way forward is if Christ is the center. So we'll lift this up together. So we sing together. My hope is built. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, 
Christ, would you be the center? Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love through the seems when darkness seems to hide his face I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil sing that again singing, I was thinking uh, that maybe many of you here today are ready for an invitation, a challenge, so to speak, to move towards one person in love. But maybe you're not. Maybe you need to receive that today. Maybe you come in a million pieces. 
And I just want to remind you, love is here. Not because of this church, but because it happened. And if that happened 2,000 years ago in a stable, then love is here. And I hope and pray that in increasing degrees, that love makes its way to this community. And so whatever receiving that this morning looks like for you, can I just remind you to say yes? It's love that powers the world. It's the engine. It's the only thing that will last. And so move towards love today if you need to. Uh, our prayer team is always available after the gathering. They would love to pray with you. Maybe, maybe the face that you feel like the Lord has given you is it's going to be a challenge, and you'd like somebody to just bear witness to that and say, the Spirit of God is in you. Go. Move towards love. Maybe you need that today. So I'd invite you to... That'll be right over here, on my right and your left. So as you go, in your waiting, and in your hoping, and in your longing, in your desire in your pain, in your hurt, in your brokenness. May you move towards love and find that, in fact, love is here. Grace and peace, my friends. Enjoy the snow. See you next week. To find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.